0: Now, The Three Martini Lunch, with Greg Corumbus and Jim Garrity.
1: And welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of The Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review and the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Karumbas of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. We'll get to those in just a moment. But, uh, Jim, as just about everyone knows, certainly if they're old enough to remember the day, eight years ago. It's been now since the terrorist attacks of 9-11 against the Twin Towers in New York City, the Pentagon in Washington, and of course, the heroism aboard United Flight 93 that ended up crashing in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And Jim, you led off the uh, morning jolt with this today, talking about how it's really unfathomable that it's already been 18 years and how the wound is maybe not as raw as it was that day or in the first few years after, but it doesn't take much remembering uh, to get to that wound pretty darn quickly. The image that will always stay with me is the collapse of the towers, perhaps even more than the uh, explosion in the towers, and then uh, obviously all the lives uh, that were lost that day. And, And we've been talking about Afghanistan lately, and obviously the military action that's been going on for Literally 18 years. If a baby was born that day, they're now a full-fledged adult, probably already in college. And um, it's amazing how fresh the memories are, even though it's been almost two decades now. You know, Greg,
0: it's been kind of fascinating as it recedes into the rearview mirror that the day, as I wrote in today's jolt, it's never going to feel normal. There's never going to be a time between September 10th and September 12th where you're not going to spend part of the day thinking about those attacks. How you felt that day, everybody's experienced that day all over Twitter, all over social media, people kind of eager to still bring out that memory to to walk through it, to remember it, all the feelings and all that stuff and it's it's kind of fascinating that, as you mentioned, you know we're, we're not where we were, both as a country or any of us individually, where we were uh, eighteen years ago, and uh, I know you've got two girls I've got two boys who I've heard about it, have learned about it. I imagine they'll probably be doing something at school about it today. But for them, it's history. For them, it's something that's in a book. They may see the video here and there, but they don't. And I've tried trying to try to communicate it, but I suddenly realized that for them, it's always going to be this thing that happened before they were born. And it's this recognition of like, wow, this is how the baby boomers must have felt about uh, November 22nd, 1963. And that, you know, obviously for many years, they would mark the assassination of John F. Kennedy on that day. But for people who came afterwards, it didn't have that same visceral gut punch when you see that day on the calendar. Same thing with December 7th, 1941. And on the one hand, this is the natural order of things. On the other hand, for those of us who were young people at the time of the 9-11 attacks, it's kind of fascinating to see this. On the one hand, it's history. On the one hand, the world has moved on. On, on. Bit by bit, this day becomes more... I'm making air quotes as I say this, normal. So we can't stop everything. We, you know, we do have to move on with our lives. On the other hand, emotionally, psychologically, we're never going to be quite the same. We're never going to look at this day as a normal day. Um, at least not for probably another two generations before it reaches that, you know, just another day on the calendar status. And uh, when we, we say never forget, it is kind of fascinating that you know, this, this day haunts us. Uh, even when things are going well in this country, we kind of do see it as this turning point in history Uh, And one that, you know, I think is still continuing to shape the world we live in.
1: Very well said. And today was another example, and it brought it right back to my mind because today was such a beautiful sunny day. It's going to be unseasonably hot by the time the day is over. But the cloudless sky, whenever that happens on 9-11, it just absolutely brings you back to that morning. It was a picture-perfect day, weather-wise, and memories just keep flooding back. I would also commend to folks who are on Twitter, first of all, not to spend a lot of time on Twitter in general, but today, uh, to go find uh, Ari Fleischer's uh, Twitter timeline, because he goes through real time. Uh, He documented that whole day. He was with President Bush down in Florida, and then when they were hopscotching uh, to a bunch of Air Force bases and eventually back to the White House for the primetime address to the nation that day, just a a minute by minute, what he was doing, what the president was doing. uh, It's amazing history, and I would encourage everyone to uh, check that out at some point today. Uh, Also, seven years today since the Benghazi attack, and that obviously takes on a number of ramifications as well. Uh, But we certainly don't want to forget the heroism of all the folks who are involved in that. Uh, Jim, let's move to our good martini now and uh, lighten the mood a little bit, because uh, yesterday was Election Day in two different uh, House districts in North Carolina. One of them was not really in much doubt, and that proved to be true. North Carolina three, following the death of Walter Jones, uh, that was an easy win. I believe 20 plus points for the Republicans. So that was a hold and an expected hold. Then you had North Carolina 9. This is a seat that's been vacant since the beginning of the year because the incumbent last year, the Republican Pittinger, lost in the primary. And then uh, on election day, things were too close to call, and then it was discovered that consultants working for the Republican candidate were pretty much engaged in absentee vote fraud. So ultimately, they threw out the election, had a new one, same Democratic nominee in Dan McCready, new Republican nominee in Dan Bishop. And as much as the Democrats wanted this as a quote-unquote bellwether for how much trouble President Trump is in for 2020, in the end, it was the Republican Dan Bishop in a right-leaning district who ended up being declared The winner, because he won. So here's Dan Bishop uh, declaring victory and who won and who lost. And they said no to the harassment, obstruction, and impeachment mob that wants to undermine this country's success for their own power. But they said yes to America. Yes to more jobs, more freedom, more opportunity. They said yes to protecting life and our Constitution. Now, the way this works, Jim, is that when the Republican wins, it's not a bellwether or an indicator of anything. So uh, what's your takeaway here? On the one hand, I'm thinking, well, it's not that impressive that a Republican won a Republican district by a fairly narrow margin. On the other hand, it's not the uh, D landslide and the harbinger of 2020 that a lot of folks thought it might be. It's a sigh of
0: relief. Um, This was a relatively close one. I think the Democrat got about 48 percent. Um, obviously, there are irregularities and complaints about the last, uh, the 2018 election, which is why they're having this particular special election. Um, this is a pretty Republican-leading district. Republicans have held it since the 1960s. Um, you know, in special elections, you just never quite know what's going to happen because a big chunk of the electorate doesn't pay attention, forgets that it's election day, isn't really tuned in. Um, so that's why you get your, you know, Charles Jue won in Hawaii uh, in, back in you know, the 2010 uh, election cycle. Uh, Republicans picked up Anthony Weiner's seat after his resignation. You know, you get those kind of funny results there. And if, you know, you win an open seat race, you always have a chance of holding on the, the following election. Although, again, Jew and uh, uh, Robert Turner did not uh, hold it on once the, you know, the regular election day rolled around. Yeah, but Democrats thought they had a good shot at this one, and they did have a good shot at this one, but they just didn't have quite enough. Probably the most encouraging thing for North Carolina Republicans was how high the turnout was in the more rural counties. Um, these are actually, you know, folks who had been voting Democrat up until uh, fairly recently. Trump held a rally there. Turnout was pretty darn good amongst the demographics they wanted to see turning out. So for the Republicans you are like, okay. Uh, if we lost this, we would have good reason to feel very worried. It would mean the Democratic base is motivated and our base isn't. We got just enough people out to win this thing. We're not quite the Stacey Abrams standard. Um, <laughs> we have to win by 50,000 votes or more for it to count. But uh, it's a little tougher to do in a House district, uh, particularly a special election. Yeah, look, this was a pretty good result. Now, I don't think you could say North Carolina is absolutely, totally in the bag for Trump in 2020. Now, North Carolina Republicans know they still have their work cut out for them. But uh, look, if... If they had not won this one, it was going to be a uh, hit the fire alarm, red alert. Everybody at battle stations, you know, we're really in trouble here. And thankfully, they don't have to do that. Also, you figure Bishop, in a normal election circumstance, should be a pretty safe bet to to keep this seat. But let's also keep in mind Karen Handel beat John Ossoff and uh, then got knocked out in the next uh, regular election. So you can't totally take this thing for granted. But uh, again, if you're a Republican,
1: this result is far superior to the other alternative. All right. On to uh, our bad martini now. It's a follow up to our breaking news martini yesterday. And that's that John Bolton is out at the White House. We read President Trump's tweet yesterday that Bolton was fired and assumed that that was the case. It's not necessarily the case. It might still be the case. But John Bolton was texting folks at Fox News and elsewhere, making it very clear that he believes he resigned here, that uh, this was not something that Trump initiated, that Bolton uh, offered to resign On Monday, slept on it again, and then it submitted his resignation yesterday. But whatever happened, Bolton is out. Jim explained yesterday why he thinks this is definitely not a good thing. He explained it in even more detail in the morning jolt today. And now there's even more reasons to to growl at this. This is from the Associated Press. Iran's president urged the U.S. on Wednesday to, quote, unquote, put warmongers aside as tensions roiled the Persian Gulf amid an escalating crisis between Washington and Tehran in the wake of the collapsing nuclear deal with world powers. Hassan Rouhani's remarks signaled approval of President Donald Trump's abrupt dismissal of John Bolton as national security advisor, a man routinely pilloried by Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif as part of a B team that targeted Iran. Rouhani saying, quote, Americans have to realize that warmongering and warmongers are not to their benefit but he didn't leave it there. They should not only abandon warmongering, but also abandon their maximum pressure policy. There's also some rumors that Trump and Rouhani may meet face to face at the opening of the U.N. General Assembly later this month, which I'm sure John Bolton just loves the idea of. So, Jim, what do you make of the fact that the Iranians are thrilled about this?
0: Yeah, any day the Iranian mullahs are applauding what you're doing, you've you've probably made the wrong choice. That's a good point to, to step back on this. Uh, I don't know. I hadn't done the math yesterday, but I did it. I, you know, added it all up. Quite a few people seem to appreciate this. Greg, in 31 months, Trump has had two secretaries of defense, two acting secretaries of defense, two secretaries of homeland security, two acting secretaries of homeland security, two secretaries of state, one acting secretary of state, two CIA directors, and three chiefs of staff. And once again, that's in 31 months. We're still five months away from a full third year of the Trump presidency. Look, a lot of presidents run into trouble with their cabinet. They they end up having disagreements. In 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 the abstract, this is not necessarily this is certainly not unprecedented, and it's not uh, the end of the world. But it is kind of troubling that not just does everybody, you know, not last very long in this administration, they tend to leave on very bad terms. Um, Mattis is Sort of holding his tongue, but it's really not that hard to read between the lines of his very terse resignation letter, and also the passages in his book. He never directly calls out the president, but his lessons about what makes a good leader appear to be a rather pointed criticism of the president of the United States. The other thing is also John Bolton. You know, first of all, he says that you know he was uh, there was a dispute about whether he resigned or whether he was you know uh, the president demanded his resignation. John Bolton, there's no indication that John Bolton is going to say, well, it just didn't work out. Sorry, things didn't work out between us, Mr. President. I'm going to go off and be quiet and write my memoirs that will come out after you leave the office or something like that. John Bolton is a bureaucratic knife fighter. John Bolton, you know, does not hold his tongue about many things. And my suspicion is at some point, uh, in fact, he made a comment along these lines yesterday, he will say his piece. And it's really not that hard to see what was going on here. Look, of course, Trump and Bolton have always had a certain amount of disagreements about foreign policy and national security, there's some, you could even say, you know what, good for Trump, he has a wide variety of viewpoints around him, he doesn't expect to agree with everything every advisor says, this is, you know, within the this is, you know, Lincoln's team of rivals or something like that. Well, sometimes you get a team of rivals, and sometimes you get a team of enemies shooting at each other, metaphorically, uh, or you get the snake pit uh, uh, kind of environment that you have in the White House, which is not good and not healthy, and doesn't help the president make the best decisions possible. The other thing that uh, kind of comes to mind in all this is that, look, this came after the very unusual news that the President of the United States had wanted to invite the Taliban to Camp David to finalize the negotiations for a U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. This is way outside the realm of quote unquote normal foreign policy. I don't think you have to be a mind reader to figure out that John Bolton thought this was an appalling idea. There are reports coming through that, you know, coming through the grapevine that Bolton and Trump, like they didn't disagree politely about these sorts of things. They would raise their voices at each other. And that's, um, in an ideal administration, you would not have the national security advisor raising his voice to the president of the United States. There's no doubt about who proposed this. The New York Times has reported it. Apparently Rush Limbaugh was saying, whoever thought of that is a really, you know, needs their head examined. Well, there's not really a long list of suspects. This, This is exactly in keeping with Trump's, I'm the great deal maker. I wrote the art of the deal. I know how to do this thing. There's nobody else in the White House staff who would ever, you know, who would also, who would recommend this kind of idea. Nobody else around there is this kind of a dove. And it sounds like the president believes he he's willing to meet with Rouhani of the Iranians uh, at the UN meeting later this month. He is uh, interested in meeting with. Uh, he's met with Kim Jong Un twice and wants to do this. This president believes he can make a deal with just about any foreign leader or any hostile force on the face of the earth. Bolton does not believe that. This is where this, this is at the, the core of their tension. And uh, you, you like to think that Bolton could at least be kind of a, a check on this desire. something Mr. President, this is not just another real estate deal in Manhattan. These guys are killers, not metaphorical killers, literal killers. And we should not be inviting them to the United States. We should not be shaking hands with them. You know, if we want to withdraw from Afghanistan, we can withdraw from Afghanistan. But let's not elevate them. Let's not treat them with a the respect that they do not deserve. These guys should be six feet under not on the other side of a negotiating table. I'm sure President Trump doesn't like it when people talk to him like this. But you know what? Sometimes the job of the, the cabinet around him is to save the president from his own bad judgment and say, Mr. President, this isn't going to work. But we see where we've, we've ended up with that, Greg.
1: Yeah, when you look at the major foreign policy challenges for this country, uh, you look at the Trump's soft approach to North Korea, which John Bolton was not a big fan of. He was a big fan of maximum pressure on Iran, and he was a big opponent of cozying up to the Taliban and treating them like diplomats. So from a conservative foreign policy perspective, I think on the big disagreements, uh, you would, for the most part, line up with John Bolton. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now and on to the Trump campaign. Jim, in 2016, in the Republican primary, one of the opponents for President Trump was Jeb Bush, and one of the arguments against Jeb Bush was... We've had enough Bushes. We've already had two presidents named Bush. We really don't need a third. And the Bush family at that point wasn't very popular within the party anyway. Uh, Then he, of course, ran against Hillary Clinton. We've already had a President Clinton. She feels like she's entitled to it. That's not what America's all about. Oh, how quickly things change. AP, President Donald Trump's campaign manager predicted Saturday that the president and his family will become, quote, a dynasty that will last for decades transforming the Republican Party while hewing to conservative values. Speaking to a convention of Republican Party delegates in Indian Wells, California, Brad Parscale also said the campaign's goal is to build a national army of two million trained volunteers far beyond the president's 2016 organization that in California could help the GOP retake a string of U.S. House seats captured by... Democrats last year. Quote, the Trumps will be a dynasty that will last for decades, propelling the Republican Party into a new party, he said, one that will adapt to the changing cultures, one that must continue to adapt while keeping the conservative values that we believe in. So, Jim, the only thing I think I like that I heard there was that they're actually going to have an apparatus in California which could help down ballot. I think it's a fool's errand to think that it might actually help on the presidential level. But what do you make of the words dynasty and Trump family when it comes to politics being brazenly thrown out there by his campaign manager. So 2020 is locked up, huh? (laughs) Look, I know we need a horse, but look at this cart. (laughs) This
0: is a fantastic cart. It's gold. It's fabulous. It's, you know, you have no idea how much time we're thinking about 2024 election, 2028 election. Really, I think we are set for 2032. Hey, guys, how about 2020? It's a year away. And look, you look at the president's approval rating in a whole bunch of these states. It's, it's pretty lousy. You're, you're in the high 30s, low 40s. Um, now, could the president do better in a head-to-head matchup against certain Democrats? Sure. You know, approval is just, how do you, what do you think of the job the president's doing? It's always possible they won't like the direction the Democrats want to take the country in. Having said that, so far, the head-to-head matchups do not look good, particularly against Joe Biden. The interesting thing is, like, when you see fairly significant difference between, like, Biden versus, like, Buttigieg, it's not like Biden and Edge have like wildly different policies that they're offering. So one, I think it tells you a little bit about the personality name, you know, name ID, how familiar are they with this particular person, that sort of thing. But also, you know, the suggestion of like, how, how do voters feel about the candidate much less than, you know, what kind of ideas? So if, if the Trump argument is, Hey, these guys are a bunch of socialists, they're going to undo all the good we've done. They're going to wreck the economy. I guess they're going to attack him on the, attack him on a debt there, Greg. You know. <laughs> Can't afford all these big spending Democratic ideas. There's fertile territory there that Trump could do very well at. But I, you know, to paraphrase, you know, Mr. Wolf from Pulp Fiction, let's not all run around patting each other on the backs quite yet, gentlemen. There's still quite a bit of work to do. Ideally, if you want to enact any of the president's agenda, you got to win back the House. That's not looking uh, all that easy. Uh, Obviously, winning last night helped, but you got a whole bunch of retirements, particularly down in Texas. There's a lot of work to do. And the idea that, oh, we're creating a dynasty, you know, besides the fact, let's put entirely separate, you know, what you think of Ivanka, what you think of Donald Jr. or something like that. Again, this is what Trump ran against, right? This idea we were, you know, a lot of us like Jeb Bush. And if Jeb Bush had been named Jeb Smith, then maybe he would have been the nominee. But there's, you know, a lot of Americans who even, you know, agree with Jeb Bush on the policies who looked at the, just, you know, thought about the idea of the American history books, a generation now having George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, and then Jeb Bush. The Republican Party was starting to look like a family business. Uh, and it's understandable that people would uh, you kind of say, yeah, you know what, we're not a monarchy. Didn't like it when the Kennedys were talked about as America's royal family or something like that. Didn't like the, t- you know, Bill and Hillary and then the talking up of Chelsea or something like that. Hey, you know what, you want to get to the top in politics, you got to earn it. You can't inherit it. You can't just step in and start, you know, running the company. That's, you know, I think a real, he- really healthy instinct in our politics. And I think Trump was able to tap into some of that. So the idea of Ivanka or John Jr. or somebody else being the heir apparent uh, completely undermines one of the main arguments that I think fueled Trump in, in 2016.
1: And there's a whole other discussion probably to be had about what Parscale means by uh Changing the Republican Party to basically look like that, I'm not sure that uh, even folks who have come around to Trump on policy grounds or whatever else necessarily want the party in perpetuity to be remade in his image.
0: Yeah, I was going to say if you want to say that the the heart of Trump populism is trading away the soccer moms in exchange for the white working class voters who are you know union members and in places like Ohio and Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and places like that. Um, it worked the trade worked in twenty sixteen. It did not work in twenty eighteen. We will see what happens in twenty twenty, and it'll be a pretty key decisive, you know, tiebreaker. So here's the thing. You win in twenty twenty, that's probably gonna happen by itself. You don't wait in twenty twenty, everybody's gonna say, eh, it was a fluke that worked once against Hillary Clinton because she was such a terrible candidate.
1: Jim, it's only Wednesday, but I feel like we've closed a lot of episodes this week with a lot of sighing so far. So hopefully the next couple of days will be a little better in that department. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.